Good afternoon and welcome to the George Eastman Museum. This is our Saturday 40 Focus uh, 45 talk on Lunar Orbiter, delivered by Arden Cosgrove. Uh, and again, thanks for uh, coming here. It's probably the, I don't know, the coolest place to be on a hot day. <laughs> I'm Todd Gustafson, curator of the Technology Collection. Uh, the, the talk on this, on this anniversary day will be given by Art Cosgrove, who is a 40-plus year uh, uh, veteran of Eastman Kodak Company, I guess is one way to put it. Uh, I said, did a little bit of time at RIT, as I understand it. But uh, obviously, you've come here to listen to Art and not me, so may I present Art Cosgrove. Good afternoon. Um, first, I, I, I should tell people a little bit about myself. I um, started uh, at Eastman Kodak in July of 1965 on the Lunar Orbiter Program. I came into it and I didn't sit around in any tank, if some of you are graduates of Kodak. Um, and uh, um, I was put right on this program. Uh, the um, my background was electronic. I was not a film guy. And uh, this was quite an introduction to um, my career. I was a kid uh, that hadn't been very far from South Buffalo, an Irish ghetto back in the day. And, um, uh, and I see one of those people in the, in the audience. <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, I had gone to Canisius College for two and a half years in business administration. I had a lot of my uh, uh, liberal arts education under my belt. And uh, I then went to a place called Erie County Tech, which <coughs> later became Erie Community College in Williamsville. It was on Elmwood in Buffalo. Uh, and then I went to RIT later and graduated with a BSEE. -E. Um, my first job, as I said, was uh, testing as a system the lunar orbiters. And uh, uh, it was a very interesting assignment. I was focused. We were looking very long hours, 12-hour days, six days a week. Uh, for the government, you worked long hours, often. and. Uh, during all the missions, I, I participated in all of the five lunar orbiter missions to the moon. And uh, I should note that they occurred almost two years before the uh, Apollo program. So Apollo 11 was in August of, uh, uh, or July of, uh, of 69. And our first uh, uh, moon mission was in August of uh, 1966. So we were, our mission was, we were part of the Apollo program. Our mission was to map the front and the backside of the moon for the Apollo program. And site selection for landing was one of the main goals. So I, took, I put this talk together um, back in 2003 after the, the, the lunar <coughs> orbiter was partially classified. It came from a gray area. It's, it had earlier, it, it was an evolution from early spy-in-the-sky satellite technologies, uh, which started in the 50s at Kodak. 
So Kodak was a major contributor to the military-industrial complex back in those days. I think uh, I saw one figure where um, the total financial interest uh, of Kodak in it was about 9% at their peak. They were one of the military-industrial <coughs> complex manufacturers. So this was interesting stuff, and I had no idea that it existed up here. I got hired off uh, campus in July, uh, January of 1965 uh, with the idea is that I was going to start work after I graduated in June, and, um, and I did. I, I took a couple weeks off and uh, uh, started in uh, uh, July of 65. I spent the first six months testing <coughs> these things as a system and then moved on to um, uh, I, I don't know how I got selected to be, uh, the, the NASA title for me was video engineer, and Kodak had the responsibility for the video signal as, as well as monitoring the, the uh, mission-focused uh, part of the, uh, of the uh, systems at the Jet Propulsion Lab. They also had the responsibility for uh, the uh, video signal after it was stripped off of the <coughs> RF carrier. Uh, at the deep space net, and there was three of them around the world. I'm getting ahead of the slide, so I should back up and find where I advance. Oh, I wanted to talk about a little bit about, first of all, this picture was taken at, oh dear, I can't pull plugs. It was taken at the uh, Smithsonian. I should have a laser print pointer. But the four panels you see around, um, uh, it, it, at the spacecraft um, are these four panels are, are uh, uh, catching the sun's rays and converting it to electrical energy sun, they were sun panels this piece here was a door that uh, uh, closed after picture taking uh, or before picture taking, it was closed most of the time, and it exposed two lenses. This was a telephoto lens, and uh, this one on the, on the right, your right, it'd be the uh, the wide angle lens. And uh, this over here was a broadband antenna. It sprayed RF communications all over the place, and uh, it was very low signal to noise. Uh, it was an eight bit uh, uh, system for. Uh, uh, telemetry, and this over here was a high gain uh, antenna for video, and um, up here was the, the, the tanks for the fuel and the, and the <coughs> rocket that moved it around, um, and so forth. And this area in here is the whole camera, and film processing system, electronics, uh, command <coughs> control, uh, and programming unit uh, within the the, uh, the uh, photographic subsystem and, uh, and so forth. So I'm going to move on. That, that as I said before, was uh, taken, that image was taken from the ceiling of the Smithsonian. Okay, now I've got to find you where I'm going here. Okay, the Russians in the period um, had been more successful, and of course we were driven by Kennedy and and so on. 
Uh, Ranger had uh, gone into the surface of the moon with uh, a video camera and caught a few frames of video. It wasn't very helpful, in my opinion. Um, it did show a little bit of the surface on a frame or two that was usable. Surveyor was uh, something that was supposed to uh, move around. Uh, it landed on the moon. Uh, the orbiter was the next, and that's what we're talking about. And our purpose was to map the front and the back side of the moon. And we, uh, our dates for five missions were August of 66 through August of 67. The Apollo lunar missions um, followed in, uh, uh, starting in uh, December of 68. Apollo 11 was later. First, they didn't land. They were the first one to land. Oops, wrong direction. Sorry. There's a lot of words here, um, and uh, I, I didn't mean to. I, I, it, it isn't intended to, to have everybody, but the highlights of this uh, read it. But the highlights are that we had about a meter resolution at best. Um, we had, uh, uh, um, we were trying to pick out potential landing sites for the uh, Apollo programs. And Apollo 11 uh, did end up going for one of those sites that uh, NASA had chosen from these, but they missed it by about four and a half miles. Um, there's not a whole lot of talk about that. I think uh, Chasing the Moon by PBS actually did capture that point. Uh, that's where I was reminded of it. Um, they missed by about four and a half miles, and one of the reasons uh, was relating to um, the fact that uh, they were outgassing air and other waste toxins from the, uh, the uh, enclosure itself on the lander, and they didn't account for that propelling the thing or moving the thing at all, and it, it did influence where the thing was going. <laughs> so uh, that, that's the official reason, I guess, that uh, that happened. We did orbit the backside of the moon, and we took pictures on the backside of the moon. The orbiter schedule, uh, these were the launch dates for the uh, uh, five orbiters that got to the moon. All missions were completed most of them very successfully. We had a couple, we had minor failures, which I'll talk about a little later. The prime contractor was Boeing, who integrated, they uh, integrated the launch vehicle, they integrated the operations and all of the subcontractors. Um, Kodak was a subcontractor, and we were a prime subcontractor, um, uh, RCA was another. They had the communication system. Um, the, they had the overall, someone asked me the other night, uh, how do you organize such a diverse group of uh, engineers and scientists and so forth? And the answer was they sent us in, I think it was January of, um, of, of 1966 to spacecraft school. So all of the subcontractors came back, came together in, at Boeing uh, in Seattle, or just south of Seattle, 
And uh, uh, I spent the next two and a half months uh, in Seattle uh, uh, being integrated in, into a team, um, going to school. <laughs> so uh, that's how you, one of the ways of, of bringing a large group of uh, people from all over the place together uh, and so forth. Um, they integrated the hardware from Kodak and RCA. They uh, integrated the Atlas Agena D launch vehicle. And uh, uh, we were also integrated into project teams. So there was a team at the Jet Propulsion Lab. Uh, you hear a lot of talk about Houston. Houston is for manned. Uh, this is unmanned uh, uh, exploring of space adventures in space, so to speak, with robots. Eastman Kodak, uh, and now uh, L3 Harris is the group, the same group that was at Kodak years ago and includes a number of other organizations today. It, 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 the group that did all of this uh, at Kodak is now it was spun off and sold to IT&T in 2003, 2004. It was a kind of a lengthy process and I think it overlapped. Um, so it isn't that long ago that Kodak uh, was doing all of this stuff. Um, ground support equipment and personnel for subsystem testing, vehicle assembly, launch and mission operations. Uh, there was a Mr. Stryker that came up to me earlier today and told me his father had gone to the Cape uh, to integrate it, uh, to uh, see to the integration, the launching, the loading of the uh, uh, device on the spacecraft. Um, the, uh, there was an engineer, electrical engineer, who was stationed at the Cape and he had moved his whole family down. He's passed Larry Ellis. Uh, is his name. Um, he had worked in the design section of the orbiter uh, prior to uh, his being uh, assigned to the Cape. The photographs returned from the lunar orbiter and the data collected on the last two flights provided a rich store of information that is still being widely studied and analyzed by lunar and other scientists and that's a quote from NASA. Um, this was a long time ago. There is a reconnaissance vehicle today that is stationed on the moon, or not on the moon, but in orbit around the moon that was launched in uh, June of uh, 2009. And it is not a Kodak product. Uh, I have no idea who manufactures it. <laughs> but it's on station there uh, today. And I'll talk about that a little bit later, what it does, but uh, or, um, it was criticized for its relative complexity. And the, I, I think in the, in the next few slides, I, I get into, and a lot of it I, I actually took from um, what I called the Bible. Uh, the Bible was a, um, uh, uh, a document that um, specified all of the subsystems uh, for the lunar orbiter, and the author is right here, <laughs> Vic Vicky. <Vicky. laughs> 
but it was my Bible when I was uh, traveling and on station uh, uh, for the uh, programs. What I did, uh, and I'm maybe getting a little bit ahead of myself here, um, what I was doing is, um, was uh, I was the video engineer. So you had three stations, uh, roughly 120 degrees apart, stationed around the world. One of them was in Roblerto, Spain, which was about an hour, an hour and a half drive from uh, Madrid to the north and east of Madrid. Uh, and the other was um, in Australia, in the outback, a place called Woomera. Um, I'm not sure what that station is doing today. Uh, I'm sure it's still engaged. It was a massive uh, system that they had there. Uh, but they moved a lot of their space stuff to a place called Parks in New South Wales, which is one of the states in Australia. And uh, Woomera was in the state of the northern side of the state of South Australia, at the southern end of the Simpson Desert. It was also a rocket range. Woomera in Aborigine means spear launcher. And um, so there was other things going on there. It was one of the most interesting places I've ever been in my life. They were developing anti-ballistic missile systems there. You sh could shoot a rocket three or four thousand miles and um, you, you didn't have the Russians hanging right offshore like Vandenberg on the west coast of the US and um, the Cape had Russian trawlers back in those days um, spying on everything that went on. And uh, uh, Woomera was really remote. You could shoot, I'm not sure if I said this, if I'm repeating it myself, I apologize, but it was three to 4,000 miles you could shoot a rocket over land and nobody was around. <laughs> except a lot of kangaroos. Um, I only put this up here because I'm gonna show you a couple pictures of, um, of uh, this area, this area, and this area. Oh, and the third station, by the way, was at Goldstone, California, which is uh, in the Mojave Desert, it's on the Fort Irwin Military Reservation. Um, it's about 70 miles north of a place called Barstow, California. If anybody knows anything about Route 66, that's along the Route 66 uh, run. It's now Route 15. <laughs> so anyway, this is Tycho. And it's one of the craters that uh, we took pictures of. This is the crater Copernicus, and the orbiter uh, took this picture. Now you see some artifact in here. Um, the way the system worked is um, we took a picture in space, and uh, we developed it. It was taken onto, recorded on film, and it was then developed in the spacecraft uh, we used a process called uh, uh, BIMAT, and that was a film. It was classified as a film, uh, special order, or SO-111, if I remember right. Vic doesn't remember. <laughs> um, my touchstone for remembering. 
this stuff. But anyway, um, it, 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 if you think about it as a, um, a little sponge with developer captured, maybe a little bit of um, gelatin to hold it all together uh, is the way I was always viewing it. But um, it would get pressed against the film wrapped around a small drum. And if you look at the machine in the area where they have one of these uh, engineering models, there was a total of eight lunar orbiters built. Five of them have been crashed into the surface of the moon, mostly on the backside, or all of them. There's one I'm missing. I, I can't really find it. NASA puts out maps of where these things have gone. And uh, at least four of them are on the backside of the moon. So they. Uh, and I'll tell a story why they ended up and the, why they ended up crashing them into the moon, but it, it involved everything from cluttering <coughs> the space around the moon to um, interference. The spacecraft, uh, Lubiter Arbiter 1, NASA says it was uh, during the second mission, but it actually was during the third. I remember exactly where I was, and I remember when the commands were sent, and that was uh, at the beginning of the uh, third mission, I was at Goldstone, California um, for that mission. And uh, it, uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, craft, forgive me, I'm having senior moments. <laughs> My memory is very good of that uh, time period, ex exceptionally good. But uh, every once in a while, I get caught up. Anyway, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, at the beginning of the mission, as the lunar orbiter number three was approaching the moon, it was being issued commands. And then they picked up on the fact that orbiter one, which was still in orbit around the moon, was starting to receive these commands and react to it. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened is uh, the line voltage, it was, it was figured out that the line voltage uh, inside the orbiter was starting to drop. The battery was starting to fail. So the thing was misinterpreting address labels, uh, addresses that were supposed to go uniquely to orbiter three were being decoded by orbiter one as well. And this potentially could have caused a collision. Uh, it could have caused, probably wouldn't have, but it, it could have. So they then directly sent signals to one from the uh, deep space station uh, at, in Goldstone, California, on the Fort Irwin military reservation. And they ended up crashing the thing into the uh, backside of the moon intentionally. And there was, if there was a plan, it wasn't well understood from NASA in terms of what to do with these things at the time. So I've said a number of times uh, over the last few weeks where I've been doing an awful lot of talking about all this that it was we were in some ways flying by the seat of our pants and uh, there wasn't we were doing there wasn't a culture that had been really established for a lot of the space work that uh, I'm sure must exist today and there wasn't a whole lot of NASA people um, I met a few at the Jet Propulsion Laboratories. Um, but there was not a whole lot of people, I mean, at the deep space net, every, everybody was um, contractors. They were from Boeing and Bendix and Eastman Kodak Company and uh, a number of others. There was, uh, in Australia, there was 
couple of nationals, Australian nationals, engineers. Um, there were people that, uh, there was a separate group, there was mission dependent people and there was um, antenna people and that included receivers and uh, transmitters, uh, engineers and uh, also the antenna itself which was a mechanical marvel to get it to aim exactly where it had to and these were very large structures. The smallest one was 90 foot in diameter, the largest was 210 foot across and that was at Goldstone. So the signal to noise ratio or the, the quality of the signal that went to the spacecraft was um, uh, superior from the Goldstone which had the 210 foot dish. I hope I'm not talking too much. <laughs> this is one of the orbiter shots. You can see in this, uh, see those stripes that kind of run through it? The film is developed on, on board the spacecraft and um, it, it's uh, uh, roughly a 70 millimeter piece of film. Um, the image size I think is 65 millimeter in width and uh, uh, so it's, it's processed by this bimat film. It's dried on board the spacecraft. It's then put into racks and sto stored. Um, and then it's rolled up onto uh, a, a take-up reel. And you could do uh, some early readouts, uh, electronic readouts, scanning of the, of the film, um, before you cut the bimat, but you had to wait until most of the processing was done before you could actually go and um, uh, take the, uh, you know, read out the full front to back 250 or 60 feet of, of exposed film. So we had about 300 foot with, with lead, and, and lead uh, on it uh, uh, on board the spacecraft. And uh, the bimat was roughly the same length, the bimat film, the processing film. Anyway, so the, th the thing then, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but note and remember those lines that you see there because they're an artifact that uh, um, uh, is easily explained. But that's one of the first pictures of the Earth looking over the edge of the moon. It was before the... Uh, astronauts got up there and took color pictures. This was all black and white and uh, it was a couple years earlier. This was a, uh, a distance shot that was reassembled at Lincoln Plant into this full image. Again, a, an oblique and again, it's got the the lines of it, the artifact, the earth, another shot. Now this whole system was fairly complex. It was very complex in fact. Uh, from a, There was all kinds of different disciplines involved. You had um, the physics of atmosphere control, temperature control, power control, um, film, exposure, photography, processing, drying, the atmosphere, the temperatures in the, inside it had to be controlled, 
I think the uh, drying drum was 85 degrees or 95. Do you remember, Vic? <laughs> huh? Uh, it was either 85 or 95 degrees. I'm just forgetting. Uh, forgive me. It's a long time ago. And, uh, uh, but it was a complex system. It had a lot of di different disciplines involved in it. And it worked extremely well, to, considering complexity. You know, I kind of view one of, the, one of the most interesting questions I've had, and I'm digressing a little bit, which I shouldn't do, I've been told, by my wife anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, one of the most interesting questions and the ones that kind of got caught in my head uh, has been, uh, why did we do this? I mean, it came up in Chasing the Moon that uh, PBS produced. Um, why do we do this? Ralph Abernathy uh, was challenging why we did it, why are we spending the money on the poor, and so forth. But this is uh, bigger than those questions, it involves us pushing our knowledge as mankind, going beyond where we've been, changing our culture and understanding the underlying purposes of what we can be and what we should be um, as human beings. And lots of technology came out of this. There was a lots of, uh, of knowledge gained relative to controlling large programs of complex systems. Uh, there was lots of knowledge that came out of uh, uh, in, in a number of different areas. And I was trying to extend that in my mind to go beyond the just our immediate um, uh, purpose here, our, our mission. What was our mission? Our mission, of course, was to map the front and the back side of the moon. But we were pushing our knowledge. We were going up in space. We were, we were real adventurers. I felt that way. I wasn't there myself, but I was. The machine was an extension of myself, or us, mankind. And um, we've done great things. <coughs> back, back in the day, there was always a little tension between, you know, within NASA, between um, unmanned spacecraft and manned spacecraft. It was like there was two different worlds in the culture of NASA. Um, as I'm re remembering. And I think it still exists today to some extent. Um, and man being involved is certainly a big part of the adventure. And someone asked, uh, or, or the point was brought up, I, I can't remember exactly which, but um, uh, what about Mars? And my answer to Mars is that it's going to be a while before we're successful getting there. And, it, and one of the, the key parts of the equation is, from an engineering point of view, is understanding man better. Um, there's a movie called uh, The Martian. I'm not sure if anybody has seen it, but it talks about a guy that got stranded on Mars in the future. And uh, he ends up getting back by some miracle to Earth, and he becomes a recluse. He was isolated for so long, for instance, that, um, but this is going to happen on any long distance space flights, especially in a confined area. And we got a long way to go in understanding ourselves, starting with ourselves. And it isn't just understanding the psycho of uh, our, our, our uh, 
ourselves, the psychological aspects of ourselves. It's also exploring the, uh, the uh, physical. So are there going to be good results that come out of in, uh, in investing in space? The answer has got to be yes. We did it with technology. We will continue to do it to, with technology. Uh, today it's more common. Everything is the cost of launching something has dropped considerably from what it was 50, 60 years ago. Um, and, and we're pushing our knowledge envelope so profoundly, and it's got to go next into, into the, the human element. How do you travel long distances in space? And it's going to drive medical knowledge uh, as a consequence, I believe. And um, I've gotten off subject, so forgive me. But this is a very complex system, and it's important to appreciate that because at the time this was way ahead of the the uh, the uh, technology environment where you had uh, complex systems that were built and packaged into a very small space. If you take a look at the 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 system out that the engineering model that's uh, that uh, the uh, museum has, um, understand that it. it just look at how densely everything is packaged in there, and everything works beautifully, or worked beautifully. <laughs> and part of that, by the way, you don't get complex systems to work without failures, at least initially. And one of the things you can, in research you got to remember is that whenever you're doing research, you're going to fail, and you're going to learn from the failure. If you don't accept it, the failure you're going to fail at the end of the day. You've got to be able to expect and then react in a positive way to failures in life. Um, anyway, I, how have I gotten off? Part of, the, part of the reason I'm drifting a little bit from uh, just talking about the technology is that uh, is, uh, I, I tested this out on my wife and a couple of other people, one of my sisters, and my daughter, and um, I was told that it's too technical, and you should uh, you should focus on the human aspects of all of this. And so I'm trying to intermix it. So forgive me if I'm making this longer than I thought it would be. Um, the the weight of the subsystem is an important uh, thing. Um, everything from the structure to everything had to we had to know the weight and control the weight, uh, which was another thing. It was important for the launch vehicle. It was important for moving the, the spacecraft around. Uh, you got mass there. Um, we had uh, a six element high, let me get into the lenses. There's two lenses in the system, which I pointed out uh, um, earlier. One was manufactured by Pacific Optical it was a six-element high-resolution, and there are some of the specifications around it. The moderate resolution, or commercially, it was a commercially available Schneider uh, lens from Germany um, for the wide-angle mapping. We put together a lot of different parts from existing. You didn't, if you wanted to reinvent everything, it was going to be a lot more expensive than it ended up being. So. Um, 
the film plane image was 65 millimeter wide by 55 in length. So that was for the, uh, the moderate resolution. There were two images that were placed right next to one another. One was the high res, which was the larger of the two, and then uh, the smaller. And the whole thing was about 11 and a half inches with each um, side by side on the piece of uh, film in the spacecraft. Um, during uh, shutter exposure, we had something called V over H electronics, which actually sensed the difference in speed between the surface of the moon relative to the, the uh, platform above the moon. And it actually moved the platen holding the film during the exposure and moved it to compensate for any blur that might occur. The exposures were normal exposures, they, what you use on your everyday camera. Uh, and there were three different exposure settings, I believe, uh, in that uh, system. And we never had to change them very much because the, the guys uh, had estimated the reflective characteristics so well on that uh, system that uh, it, it uh, they guessed right, <laughs> but we did have adjustments. <laughs> here it is, one, one 25th, one 50th, and one 100th. I had it down here. The uh, system's resolution of one meter, 39 inches, um, and eight meters respectively at 28 nautical miles from the surface. So the, the resolution varied depending on how far away we were from the surface of the moon. Um, uh, you know, the orbits varied. I think the closest we got was about 25 miles away. But I can't, you can't quote me on that. This is what it looked like. It, it was a gold, shiny gold package <laughs> with a cover on. So if you look at it, this is a manufacturing area uh, um, device that it was mounted on. So the, old, the upper part um, up in here is the, is the part that went into the spacecraft. And it was bright gold. This is the, uh, uh, the photographic subsystem without the shell on it. Um, this area over in here was all the film processing and drying and uh, areas. There was a take-up reel down here for BIMAT, um, so forth. This is another angle of the uh, guts of the spacecraft. And if you look carefully, you can see we're, and this is all stuff that was labeled by Victor, <laughs> or Vic, <laughs> in his manual. As you can see, the environmental constraints on this thing starting out were, were kind of exact. Um, that film supply had to be maintained at, at 60 degrees F, plus or minus 10. Um, we had about 60 foot at 260 foot at launch. Um, and uh, the film type was SO, which stands for special order. And special order could be 
a lot of different things. Um, it could mean there had been some tweaking in the chemistry. It could mean that the packaging was different and that it was just a longer roll of film, for instance. There was a lot of different variants. Someone asked me, is there some way of finding that out? And I said, I have no idea what it specifically meant. There's probably some lab book at Kodak Park that uh, identifies it, but, and it might not be around <laughs> anymore. Um, this is a schematic picture of the BIMAP film process and the chemistry for developing. Another schematic of the system explaining in detail. A picture of the film processing. I gotta keep going or I'm not gonna ever get finished. Uh, this, this has some interesting, um, the image frame was 11.7, I was off, I said one and a half inches, or 11 and a half. Um, we did scan each stripe though, so the film is running through the film scanner like this. And there was a, uh, and, and I do have a picture of it here, um, but it, it, it took a tenth of an inch and uh, converted it to uh, video by using an electron gun. The voltage power supply for the electron gun was 20,000 volts, and uh, it had a 1,000 volt grid driver on it and that took an uh, center ramp electrical uh, signal that allowed it to scan across a rotating, the E-gun was aimed at a phosphor drum that was about this big around and it was spinning about 3,000 RPM and um, it, uh, uh, it would scan across so you'd get a bright spot off the phosphor and the reason it was spinning and so forth is you'd burn the phosphor out real quick if you just had it scanning one area of phosphor. So you had to have it something that was randomly, or not so ran randomly, the RPM was, I'm sure, selected for a reason for, uh, uh, to get the, the proper sampling uh, location for the E-gun hitting it and generating the illumination. But there's a spot of light that's going across this tenth of an inch of film, and it's uh, generating a, a, a modulated signal depending on the density of the film. So darker areas, shadow areas, for instance, on the film are going to be a lower voltage, and bright spots are going to be a higher voltage as it hits a photomultiplier tube. The photomultiplier tube collects the photons, generates electrons or voltage, um, and uh, 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 the voltage is then modulated on the RF carrier, the radio frequency carrier. And the radio frequency carrier uh, was somewhere just above a gigahertz, um, one to two, I forget the exact number. I probably have it in here someplace, but forgive me if I don't remember it off the top of my head. Um, so that's how we created the video and electronically ridding it out. And I, <laughs> excuse me, you can see this is a schematic of the, um, this is the E-gun, this is the rotating drum. There's a line of light that's coming out 
at any instant in time, it was uh, moving along, there was a spot of light that was coming out and going through a collector lens that stepped it down to that tenth of an inch width. So that's how we created a video signal. This was then modulated, as I said, uh, to the uh, communication subsystem or on the communication subsystem and uh, uh, transmitted back to Earth. And if you look inside the, the, the spacecraft, this is an actual picture of that. That was manufactured by CVS Laboratories in uh, Connecticut, I believe. This is a picture of uh, th this thing area here. This is where the lens rode up and down in front of the film. Um, film handling arms, very it, it, engineering marvel, this whole thing. I mean, <laughs> not very simple from a, and just how it all came together is, is amazing. Some more, too much detail. Too much detail. That's a video signal. It had a standard like a sink uh, and blanking area, just like a, a the old analog video. If anybody's an engineer in here that remembers such things, digital is a little different today. Um, we maintained pressure. Nitrogen. 99%, 1% oxygen and other trace gases and uh, control the humidity to plus or minus 50% at a temperature of 95 slash 85. That meant different parts of it were uh, maintained at different temperatures. <laughs> Power, film processing was just 109 watts. Now we're on a spacecraft and we're collecting with solar panels, power for this. And when we went back behind the moon, everything had to be shut off, or most of everything had to be shut off because we didn't have any sun collection. So we had to manage the power as well. So the engineers at Kodak that designed and developed it, and I, was, I just came in at the end of the game, um, have to be, I mean, the, the extent of controls that had to be done here are just phenomenal to me. I, uh, let me keep on going here. It's too much here. Oh, here's the frequency. The traveling wave tube operated at 2.3, 2.295 gigahertz. Um, <coughs> Space communications is difficult. It's more difficult than on Earth within our atmosphere. There's more elements in our atmosphere, and the natural frequency of these elements imp impact the various frequencies and the efficiency of transmitting those frequencies through uh, the media. In space, you, your primary element is hydrogen, I believe, and um, so the hydrogen atoms vibrate naturally at a certain frequency and it's in the one to two uh, gigahertz region. So you gain efficiency in space, but you don't have a lot of elements in space. So space communications going beyond the lunar orbiter, but for any space communications, the big next jump there is gonna have to be optical or um, using the, the fewer or narrower band frequencies that you have in space um, to um, 
uh, move forward uh, in, in space as we send a lot of different spacecraft into in various directions away from our galaxy. A little bit about the electronics. Uh, the, uh, it, the, we used uh, digital for the telemetry. It was a 8-bit, 7-bit with, uh, with a check bit um, for all of the uh, converters. Um, I tried to uh, go back a few years ago and come up with the data rate and was very low by the way, you know, how we talk about data rates today. <laughs> it's probably in the 50 or somewhere in there, uh, bits per second or something. It was very slow. More pictures. Again, the orbital mechanics worked weren't done by Kodak, they were done by Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Site selection, telemetry, command and control monitoring were all done by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. The deep space net, the photographic mission was essentially run from the deep space net. We were the first to see the images. You didn't have satellites connecting everything back to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. In fact, communications was very difficult. Maybe 30 to 50 percent of the time we had voice communications with, through phone lines <laughs> from uh, the outback. It was not much better from Spain. Spain was a pretty primitive place in the uh, 60s. Um, um, Jet Propulsion Lab uh, it, it was so close to uh, Goldstone that there wasn't any issues there. So you had pretty good communications between JPL and, uh, and, and uh, the California Deep Space Net site. Um, the missions ran from 28 to 35 days typically. Uh, maybe with some cleanup we were a little longer. I went out to these sites and I, the first time I, I was going, I said, well, how much money am I going to need? How long am I going to be gone? I didn't have any of these answers. So I had a, an open ticket issued to me from to get to Australia, which was my first overseas assignment. And um, I got to Australia and I had to get a driver's license over there. <laughs> I, took a, I, I took a driver's uh, test in Sydney and this guy made me uh, with a stick shift I was on a hill like this overlooking the harbor and it was absolutely a beautiful sight, right? And I had this terrible distraction of this view and I had to back up with a stick shift into this very narrow parking place and, and park it. But anyway, I got my Australian driver's license and uh, uh, remember they, they drive just like England on the wrong side of the road. Uh, um, the, the video signal is interesting because it's slow um, by comparison to most video signals, uh, analog signals. It was 230 kilohertz and um, 
it was what what is called a slow scan system and a lot of that had to do with signal to noise ratio we're traveling 240,000 miles back from the moon with only 10 watts of RF power um, and uh, uh, as you went up you would uh, nose over in terms of your signal uh, performance it would drop we had what uh, at deep stake deep space site we had two for redundancy ground reconstruction electronics or GREs um, those GREs uh, also had uh, the, what the ground reconstruction electronics did is it took a signal uh, from the spacecraft after it was Kodak was responsible for the signal after it was stripped off from the RF, and that was a different section of the, each build, of the Deep Space Net building. And it was piped into our room, and Kodak's responsibility was that from there on. So we took and we, uh, uh, we wrote the signal to film, rewrote it to film. That was 35 millimeter film. And uh, we um, uh, processed it on site, both <coughs> streams, so there was redundancy. There was two rolls of each. We processed it. We took and reviewed it and uh, packaged it up and sent it off through regular mail, I think it was, um, to 121 Lincoln Avenue in Rochester. <laughs> I even remember the address. A secretary wrote up the things, but I had to tell her what address it was years ago. Um, These are some pictures that somebody took years ago. This is the, uh, uh, these pieces are the two ground reconstruction electronics assemblies that Kodak uh, put together in the ground support area. There's me uh, many, many years ago sitting in front of one at, uh, and, and this is at Woomera, and that's me. What I did most of the time, I had technicians that sat in front of these and made sure everything was constantly running. I was talking whenever the phone lines were up to the Jet Propulsion Lab from whatever site I was at. We would describe the signal, we'd talk about the parameters of, uh, of the, uh, of the uh, telemetry uh, and so forth. And there was often long periods of time when we um, didn't talk, but uh, there was questions that came up. Um, one night I had uh, uh, somebody from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a NASA person, uh, asked me if I, to look at a specific frame of film after it came out of the processor. I don't know what he was looking. He wouldn't tell me what he was looking for. <laughs> so uh, I had to just look at this one frame area. So I'm going through all the strips and, uh, and so forth. and. Uh, I don't know if he was looking for a downed spacecraft or um, which was highly reflected, but it looked like there was a high reflection from a, a point on the moon. And uh, to be honest with you, I, th I thought it was the bimat would occasionally stick, especially if it was stopped, like when, when, it behind, uh, when we went behind the moon. If there was processing going on, they had to stop it when it went behind the moon. Um, and uh, uh, so forth. So, 
uh, it, the, the thing would tend to dry out in little pockets and, and we'd occasionally get dampness that was left on the film and dried into the film so we'd have some artifact, very minimal, but this one piece looked like a piece of <laughs> of, um, uh, of, uh, of the bimat head stuck to the film and maybe got pulled off. But anyway, that's what uh, that's what the life on uh, at a deep space station uh, was like. I had to wait around for several months for the first launch, by the way, and I got to see parts of Australia. Uh, I'd make trips out into the outback with uh, some of the locals. There was one young guy and his wife who adopted me. I think they had a vehicle that they could go out into the outback with. And we'd take adventures, Day, days, uh, you know, we'd make them opal mining fields and, uh, and, and uh, as one target location. And I bought a bunch of opals uh, uh, at one time for five to $20 uh, each. Uh, I had one appraised at 800 a few years ago. Um, so there was adventure that went beyond just the adventure, personal adventure that went beyond. One day we got out there and we we're about six hours out in the outback. You just drove, there wasn't any roads back in those days. I took my wife over there in 2005 and uh, wanted to show her some of the country. And uh, I'm looking at maps and there's roads all over the outback now. <laughs> it was just, you know, I, I did it one year. I, I drove up, normally uh, when we'd fly into Adelaide, and then a military uh, DC-3 from the Australian Air Force would come and pick us up and bring us up to Woomera. And one time I took and I drove up. And I, I was on roads all the way up to Port Pirie, which up in, is up on the uh, uh, northwestern end of, uh, or north center end of, of the state of South Australia, and then took off into the outback. And the outback, uh, driving in the outback is quite an adventure. Um, there wasn't any roads. They had, uh, twice a year they sent this road grader to plow through the sand, scrape it down uh, because the winds would blow and fill in and you couldn't in places actually see where the road was supposed to be. And it was one lane and occasionally you'd come across a big truck uh, or something and you'd have to get off the road and you'd have to find, or he would have to find uh, some area where there was uh, dried, hard, Dunga was the term used for the uh, red dust um, uh, in the outback. Um, anyway, uh, let me continue here. Um, anyway, I drove that distance, which was about 450 miles, um, and it was quite an adventure. <laughs> Uh, that was in a Holden. A Holden was a General Motors car that looked like it was parts from various punch and dives from the General Motors plants in the U.S. that got scrapped or something. Uh, it, was, it was a good car that was reliable, although we did lose a transmission about six hours out when I was with this couple doing adventures in the Outback one, one time. And we ended up having to get underneath the car and get it. We, we actually got it into second gear. And we ended up driving back in second gear only. Uh, 
across the dunk. It took us about eight hours. It was dark by the time we got back, and uh, compasses are great things. <laughs> I'm not going to get into this, but we actually created a, a monitor out of um, a uh, long, phos persistent phosphor oscilloscope, Tektronics. Um, I, I won't explain, unless you really are an electronics person, I'm not even going to get in, but we could actually recreate a, a TV-like viewing for instantaneous viewing, using driving the z-axis, which is modulating the the, the cathode ray tube uh, electron gun. Um, it was a very crude system, but it worked. And uh, I could read the video signal. I could tell you what kind of terrain we were going in just looking at the video signal. Um, you got, if you, if you understood the technology of how a video signal worked, it got very easy to read. Um, and put a picture together in your head. I mean, just looking at the video. Um, uh, the mission was highly successful, especially when compared to other space programs. And But things did not always work perfectly. What went wrong? Orbiter 1, some photographs were compromised with noise-induced error on the V over H electronics. It was a simple fix a capacitor, nickel capacitor, shunting noise or frequency, the, the higher different frequency noise to ground. Um, Orbiter 2, that was in Spain. <laughs> um, the processing water came from a well that was up a slight rise behind the station. We were out in the country in rolling hill land and um, there was often sheep grazing all over the place, right around the, uh, the site. And uh, we had some heavy rains, and it washed material into the, um, the, the uh, plumbing for the uh, wash water, the well. And they had a couple of filters on it, but it wasn't enough. And it ended up that all the film was sticking together as it came out of the processor, the film processor was sticking together. I wasn't a chemist. <laughs> so we brought the film into um, the uh, University of Madrid and the chemist took a look at it and he said, this is sheep shit. <laughs> and I got out there the next day and um, uh, I got out there the next day and uh, showed it to the station manager and immediately walked me downstairs, look at the filters. And he immediately doubled or tripled, I can't remember, uh, the number of filters on the water coming in from the well. And I'm not sure if, I don't remember if they moved the sheep or not, but. <laughs> um, Orbiter 2 also, uh, there was a Boeing engineer who was arrested um, for attending uh, illegal church services. Now, Spain back in these days was very much a Catholic country under the dictatorship of Franco, and um, it was an extremely poor place, um, I, I thought, coming from the US, I guess. Women still did laundry in all the streams. That's the only way, that's the only thing they had. There was no electricity out in the countryside. 
there was no place to stay. Everything was dirt floors. If you went into a, a cantina or a bar um, for a glass of wine and some food, for instance, on the way home, um, everything was dirt floors. Um, and and uh, anyway, this engineer was a devout, and I forget what religion, it wasn't Catholicism. Uh, Spain was totally Catholic at the time. And uh, this guy, they raided this, this uh, service, church service, and this guy, this engineer got arrested. Ended up in jail, we didn't know what happened to him, he just disappeared. And um, that we finally found out what happened to him and our government got him out of jail. Um, In number three, orbiter number three, uh, that's, uh, I've already talked about that. That was orbiter one, uh, low system voltage, and uh, it, it, was, um, it was interpreting commands to three as its own. Orbiter number three, uh, the spacecraft line scan tube, high voltage power supply, which was 20,000 volts and 1,000, failed after about 70% of the spacecraft images were read out. Analysis pegged the failure to improper switching of ground to spacecraft power at the Cape. So there was something that went on down there where they had really screwed it up when they transferred uh, uh, power from ground power to spacecraft power. And this is something that occurs a few, uh, maybe an hour before the actual launch. Um, Anyway, that, that was the official record on what happened there. Uh, NASA reported as being about 90% of the images. And what it was is there was overlapping from different missions. So it wasn't really, um, a, 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 it was more like a 10% loss. Um, Orbiter 4, the technical operations were, oper were running so smoothly, the project had well exceeded all the expectations. There was all kinds of failure modes that were built into what was going to happen. And, <laughs> but we had a personal problem. Uh, a Kodak engineer is trapped for hours. This is a fellow by the name of Roger Umdenstock. Roger was trapped in his car after he had an accident with uh, one of the bulls in a herd of bulls. Uh, Spain was very much into uh, bullfighting. Every Sunday you could go down and spend a whole day watching bullfights in Madrid. And, uh, and, and uh, they were trained out in the, this semi-mountainous region of Spain that we had to drive through every day. And the bulls kind of were like gods. They roamed the countryside. Uh, you weren't supposed to hit them. You were they, they were of value to the people. And Roger hit a bull, and he ended up um, getting arrested, um, and uh, had a little problem. He disappeared for a day or so, <laughs> um, but he made it out alive. No real damage. In orbiter number five, Kodak engineer, while driving approximately 3.30 in the morning to the Deep Space Net site in remote Spain, had bridge collapse under him driving off just prior to total bridge failure. This was me. Um, <laughs> and as I say, I was in the middle of the night and the rain was coming down like crazy. It was hard driving rain. Um, 
the bridge was about a year old. And I went over it and it felt like I had dropped maybe a foot. I mean, it was like a real jar. The car uh, dropped and I just gunned it. I, I didn't know what it was, what I had hit, but I gunned it. And I, I, I got off the bridge apparently just in time. Um, the next afternoon I was coming back from work, uh, going to my apartment in Madrid, and um, the bridge had collapsed during the middle of the night. It was a scrubbing action. Uh, heavy rains had washed out the uh, support uh, under the bridge, and I was very lucky. Did you get hazard pay? No. <laughs> Actually, you know, the guys that worked for me got uh, were getting $100 a day, and I, you know, I, I didn't even pay attention to what I was making. In fact, that's my whole career. Uh, <laughs> I never worried about what I made. I always thought that I was doing things that interested me. And I had an interesting career at Kodak and I just never paid attention to the dollars. I was well, I thought I was well compensated, but I never paid attention. I couldn't have told you. I think the first time I looked probably was when I retired or <laughs> for retirement, maybe a year before I retired. I, how much am I gonna do? How much am I going to get? Can I afford to retire sort of thing? And that was, I retired at 65. So I'm 77 now, so, and I'm doing well. <laughs> yeah, these guys got 100 bucks a day in addition to pretty high pay. These fellows from Boeing and Bendix and so forth, they were per diem. Um, I didn't tell the story about uh, the first time I went over and how much money I needed, did I? Um, I told Vic yesterday. But anyway, I, um, Kodak, uh, uh, you know, I asked, well, how much money am I going to need? You know, you know what it's going to cost over there. And I couldn't find anybody that had gone over. I think I talked to one of the fellows. Uh, John Stetz had been over there for a short period on the ground support stuff. And um, Stets couldn't remember anything. I didn't. I, ha I had no idea what it was going to cost me to live. I didn't know how long I was going to be over there. Back in those days, um, I can't remember if I had an American Express card or not. I must have. But I had. Um, um, they gave me uh, American Express checks, and I finally asked. I said, "Why don't you give me three thousand? I'll bring back what I don't use." And uh, <laughs> so I get over there, and uh, in the outback, I mean, I was living on a, a, a Air Force base, uh, an Australian Air Force base, and um, my in an officer's quarters, room and board was like um, twenty-five dollars Australian a week, which was probably maybe fifty cents on the dollar. Um, and uh, my first bill back, I, I had sent back because I had a receipt. They interpreted it at, uh, as uh, $29 and some cents US and it was really Australian, which was about half that. <laughs> I had trouble spending money. You couldn't spend it. I mean, uh, uh, beyond the $25 a week for room and board, I think it was, um, I think I had to buy some soap, laundry soap, because you did your own laundry. There wasn't any maid service or anything like that. <laughs> And um, 
what else was there? I think I went to the theater one night. Beers were, uh, for a pint, were a nickel. Um, Australian wines were for, pretty good, but they were, again, dirt cheap. You could buy a bottle for 50 cents or something like that. And I, I was into running. I was a competitive runner at the time, and I'd go out if I was with nothing to do. I'd run in the early morning or late at night for miles um, to uh, um, just to stay in condition. Um, and that was an interesting experience too. A lot of stories there, but that's, I, I'm not gonna go there. This was a typical report that went back to uh, Rochester. And I, I, the only reason I saved it is because it had names of people. Uh, I usually, it was handwritten. Um, the secretary, my secretary was a woman by the name of Anne. I can't remember her last name, I wish I could. But she'd sign it for me um, because I'd be gone for long periods of time. Um, my group leader was Paul Fromm, uh, right up here, Paul. Stetz was the head of ground support at the time. Um, Wilson, some of the others, Larry Albertson and Umdenstock were the guys doing the same thing I was doing. It was pretty uneventful, but they wanted to hear from you once a week at least uh, to make sure that you were still alive, I hope, <laughs> and everything was going well. Okay. All right, very quickly. I, I said before that, um, uh, you know, okay, this was a long time ago. What's happened since? Well, it took until 2009 for the U.S. to uh, launch something called the uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And I have no idea who the manufacturer is, but it's a video system. Um, it's on station today, still, uh, and it has three different types of cameras. It was launched in um, June of 2009, as I said before. And um, uh, three cameras, uh, there was a wide angle, a telephoto, and uh, uh, a what they call multi-spectral, and that can cover a lot of different things, but rather than just using 300 or 400 uh, nanometers to 700 nanometers of visual um, observation or wavelengths light, they have gone to mixing layers of uh, narrower band uh, with multiple sensors and so forth for, and this is the stuff that they can tell and read whether or not forests are diseased or there's marijuana growing in a field. And, or in the case of one uh, system, they were finding uh, below the surface of the uh, ground um, old uh, foundations from uh, the uh, uh, Vikings uh, throughout Europe and also um, in, in North America. Sorry for taking so long. Oh my God, I apologize. <laughs>